Let's turn in the scriptures to Mark 13. Mark chapter 13. This is the second book of the New Testament, and we're nearing the end. We've been actually studying this book for three months now, and according to the plan, we have about a month to go. As we've read the gospel according to Mark together, we have, I think, consistently encountered a powerful portrayal of Mark uh, when he conveys that Jesus is the Messiah. He's God's chosen king to rule forever on earth. Mark, of course, is basing his written portrayal on Peter's verbal explanations. The two of them, when this book was being written, were church planting teammates in Rome. In the past few weeks, we've actually crossed the turning point in the book. That was at chapter 8, about halfway through, there was a turning point. Um, Once the disciples, over the first seven or eight chapters, had grasped that Jesus was the Messiah, they grasped that truth because Jesus just repeatedly displayed his power over creation, his power over Satan, his power over sin, his power over death. They become convinced that he is God's chosen king. As soon as they get it, he starts teaching them the second major lesson. Not who he is, but what he's come to do. And that second major lesson, you see it once in chapter 8, once in chapter 9, once in chapter 10. It sounds like this. Jesus says to his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem. And there the Son of Man, which is a title for the one who's going to rule forever on earth. We're going to Jerusalem, and there the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, arrested, mocked, whipped, crucified, but he'll rise again three days later. And for the disciples, that last bit about resurrection never even registered. The only part of of that announcement of Jesus' mission that they heard was the suffering part. And they had no category for a Messiah who would suffer, even though from the Old Testament they should have. So beginning in chapter 8, Jesus is basically saying, I'm going to Jerusalem and there I'm going to be crucified. In chapters 10 and 11, he's moving into Jericho and then into Bethany. So you're going like 15 miles outside of Jerusalem to about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And in the passage we study today, Mark 13, Jesus is just on the other side of the valley from Jerusalem, about a mile away on the Mount of Olives. If you're looking at it today, it would look something like this. You're standing on the Mount of Olives and you're overlooking the city of Jerusalem. The teaching, if you're looking at Mark 13, begins in verse 1 with the disciples commenting on the beauty of the temple and the buildings surrounding the temple. It's a little bit like what we do when we drive 35, 40 miles into Cleveland and we get an up-close look at those structures You know, you see pictures of them, but when you're actually standing in front of the stadium, there's something about the size and something about the design. You just say, how impressive. Or if you stood in the middle of public square and you just look up, how impressive. It's exactly what the disciples are doing here as they overlook the... uh, the temple, the Temple Mount from the Mount of Olives. There was actually an artist about 150 years ago who attempted a um, 
a rendering of what it might have looked like in the disciples' day. One scholar just describes it like this. It was a mountain of white marble decorated with gold. That's what dominated the Kidron Gorge. It was an object, he says, of dazzling beauty. These disciples are standing less than a mile away. They're just saying, how impressive. That's where the reading picks up. Mark 13, and as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Another scholar, Jay Simmons, just writes, If Christ's prophecy about the destruction of the Herodian temple referred to the temple property or even to the entire block of buildings within that outer enclosure, no prophecy of Scripture has been fulfilled more literally. It would be destroyed. Verse 3, And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I'm he, and they'll mislead many. They'll lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Jesus is describing the immediate future and really what will characterize the entire future until the end when he returns. And it's going to be characterized by wars, earthquakes, famines, pretend messiahs. If you say, what do you mean, pretend messiahs? Well, you're either talking about like political insurrectionists claiming to be world ruler or religious leaders who are saying, I'm God's chosen who's going to rule forever. Exactly like Jesus says, history has been full of all these sorts of labor pains, including today. And then he describes in verses 9 to 13 how his disciples are going to endure and advance the gospel even in the face of persecution. Verse 9, But be on your guard, because they're going to deliver you over to councils. You'll be beaten in synagogues. You'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is not saying that you earn your salvation by your endurance. Salvation is not earned at all. It's a gift. It's grace. But what Jesus means here is that genuine faith, the the way you know the real thing, 
is that it has the quality of endurance. It endures things like family ostracism, even martyrdom. If your faith doesn't have the quality of endurance, it's not the genuine thing. It's not saving faith. And in verses 14 to 23, Jesus describes what will happen when his disciples witness the decimation of Jerusalem. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, Mark says, let the reader understand. Hint, hint. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let the one who's on the housetop not even go down nor enter his own house to take anything out. Let the one who's in the field not turn back to even take his cloak. Oh, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it won't happen in winter. For in those days there'll be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut those days short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, don't believe it. Because false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the very elect. But be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Jesus says, I am describing to you that a time is coming when the temple in Jerusalem will be desecrated and political insurrectionists will abound. And he essentially says, in that day, you're going to need to flee immediately into the mountains. Verse 24, but in those days, is really the climax of Jesus' words, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. This astronomical phenomena that he describes here in these few verses, it could be, it may very well be, changes in the heavens. Or it could be, like you see 30 times in the Old Testament, descriptions, figurative descriptions of war, of human wars. I think it's probably both. But in the middle of this tumult, international warfare, even physical astronomical phenomena, Verse 26, then they're going to see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he'll send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the four ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer's near. So also... When you see these things taking place, you know that he's near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Verse 31 there is an implication that Jesus is God. His words are God's words because everything he says will certainly come to pass. Then Jesus gives his final word of pastoral application. He says, date setting is foolish. 
Rather than trying to guess when it's going to happen, Jesus just says, live all the time with faithfulness to the responsibilities I've given you. Verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. He leaves home, puts his servants in charge, each one with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper, stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you don't know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. What a powerful passage. I want to explain the passage. I want to summarize it toward the end in a main point. And then I just want to end with preaching the dominant application of stay awake. The disciples are marveling at how impressive the temple complex is. And Jesus basically says, don't be impressed. He prophesies that the temple at which they're marveling is going to be decimated. And in teaching this in Mark 13, Jesus just powerfully equips his disciples in three ways. Here's the first way he equips his disciples. Jesus takes their focus off the impressiveness of the temple and he places it on himself. They're impressed by the temple and Jesus says the temple's going to be destroyed. It's a way of saying... Don't be so focused on the temple or on Jerusalem. Be focused on the Son of Man. In fact, in the message, one of the main emphases is your focus should be on testifying to Jesus among the nations, enduring persecution as the gospel advances throughout the world. That's where your focus should be. The reason that Jesus is teaching this lesson at this point in his ministry is because it's just a few days before his crucifixion. In the timing, Jesus is actually connecting the two events. Some of the Gospels do it even more explicitly. It is, the temple's going to be destroyed because the Son of Man's going to be crucified. Israel has desecrated the temple already, and they are rejecting the one the temple's pointing to. The next two chapters, Mark 14 and Mark 15, describe in detail the rejection of Jesus and how he was abominably sentenced to death. And that's why Jerusalem's going to be left desolate. Because of the abomination of crucifying the Son of Man. Jesus connects the two events and he says, I want your focus to be off of the temple. I want it to be on the one the temple was pointing toward. The second thing Jesus does, he prophesies that Jerusalem will be destroyed to confirm the certainty of every other promise he's made. Especially that he's coming in glory to reign as king. He says, if this one prophecy is fulfilled, every other prophecy you can take for granted, it's all going to happen. The first confirms the certainty of the others. Now, this is where I have to delve into the, the, the weeds just a little bit. 
because there is some controversy over how to interpret this passage. And one of the things you might know about Tri-County is we do not love controversy. But our church does not avoid controversy. Our leaders have sought for a few years now to develop an approach to controversial passages, and I want to work through the approach right now. The approach is very simple. We try to, in situations like this, fairly explain the differing interpretations. And then we seek to, whoever's teaching, we seek to state clearly our personal interpretation. And then thirdly, we explicitly and repeatedly clarify that agreement on this controversial issue is not crucial for our unity at Tri-County. Just like we all don't have to agree on whether it's wise to trick or treat or whether it's wise to take a job that requires you to work on Sunday or whether or not the government should change daylight savings time. (laughs) Actually, the government needs to do away with daylight savings time. (laughs) (laughs) And if you're here and you think that we should keep the time change, you can't be a member here, okay? (laughs) No, we don't have to agree on these things, right? Um, We don't have to agree on every detail of prophetic interpretation. And then, lastly, so after we've fairly explained the, the interpretations and stated our point and repeatedly said this is not crucial to our unity, we try to show the application for the believer that really the the interpretation does not affect the application all of us come away with the same application and the issue is certainly that in this passage the prophecy of mark 13 is difficult to interpret i've used throughout this study one of the commentaries i've used is william lane's commentary his research and explanation of mark 13 takes up 40 pages And it begins with this sentence. In the Gospel of Mark, there's no passage more problematic than the prophetic discourse of Jesus on the destruction of the temple. Wow. It's a tough passage to interpret. People who've studied it over a lifetime struggle in the interpretation. Okay? The biggest controversy in the passage has to do with when the temple will be destroyed has to do with when verses 14 through 23 is fulfilled. Jesus there describes how the abomination that causes desolation is going to be set up in the temple, and it's going to force the Jews in Jerusalem to flee to the mountains and seek for safety outside the country. When does that happen? Well, the language that's being used is actually language from 500 years earlier from the book of Daniel, And the most clear instance in history of the abomination of desolation took place 200 years before Jesus, almost 200 years before Jesus, when a Syrian king named Antiochus IV entered the temple, sacrificed a pig on the altar, and placed a statue of himself inside. Jews today still celebrate Hanukkah, And in celebrating Hanukkah, they're celebrating the heroic efforts under the Maccabean family 
to take the temple back from Antiochus IV and the desecrations he caused there, and they rededicated the temple to the Lord. Hanukkah is the celebration of the temple's rededication from about 200 years before Jesus. Here, Jesus is saying, an abomination that causes desolation, that one like what happened 200 years ago, is going to happen again. That's what he's saying. The controversial question is, when? And there are two major ways of viewing it, okay? Two major ways of viewing it. One is that it was destroyed in the disciples' lifetime. It is between 66 and 70 AD. The second is that it is still future. It will be destroyed in a future time of tribulation. These are the two major viewpoints. I just want to work through each of these viewpoints and work through the strong arguments for them to come down to saying, here's where I'm at, and also to say we don't have to agree on this. The first view, that it happened in AD 70, has a few strong arguments. The first argument is that Jesus seems to be speaking directly to his listeners using you and your He shifts that when he's talking about his coming that will apparently happen later. And when Mark makes the parenthetical comment, let the reader understand, he seems to be hinting at contemporary political circumstances. Second, in verses 2 to 4, Jesus is answering a specific question about when the temple's going to be destroyed. And if he doesn't answer that question here in the middle of the sermon, you say, when does he actually explain when they're going to see the temple destroyed? It seems awkward if he doesn't refer to the decimation of the temple that was coming within their generation. The third argument is that Luke's record of this sermon and of this specific paragraph in the sermon ends like this. You can look up, Luke 21, 20 through 24, quote, There will be a great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. According to Luke's account, what Jesus describes in this paragraph seems to take place at the beginning of the times of the Gentiles, and it initiates the international dispersion of the Jewish people that had continued for about 1,900 years and is beginning to change, even though most Jews who live in the world today don't live in Israel. Seems to be suggesting that it happened historically rather than in the future. The second view has really strong arguments as well. First, it's just the simple observation that if there's going to be a temple that's desecrated and there's no temple there right now, apparently we must be talking about a rebuilt temple and all you have to do is go in and type into Google the rebuilding of the temple and you're going to find there are movements underway to rebuild the temple and to reestablish sacrifices. That's going on right now. I was at the Temple Mount almost 20 years ago and I had to go through Israeli checkpoints to get on the Temple Mount 
to get on the Islamic site on the Temple Mount. I had to go through Israeli checkpoints. And I just remember thinking, it's really strange that Israel doesn't just take over this Temple Mount. Second, the connecting phrase at the beginning of verse 24 seems to suggest that the glorious coming of the Son of Man happens soon after the tribulation. And the third, and I think strongest argument, is that verse 19 seems to describe something that's not only historically unparalleled, but worldwide, not just focused on Jerusalem. These are the arguments of the second view. There is actually a third view that combines these two. And the third view basically says Jesus was clearly referring to A.D. 70, but he was implying that something like A.D. 70 would happen in the future. All right, those are the three views. My view is the first view. I take the first view. I wrestle with the second view. I've, I've wrestled with the arguments of the second view now for over two decades. They're strong arguments. I see them. I'm not persuaded by them. I don't find them compelling. The third view, I think, is a possibility, especially depending on how you take 2 Thessalonians 2. I'm open to the third view, but I'm not convinced that Jesus is implying that here. My view is the first view. So, I've stated the views. I've stated their, their strengths. I've told you which one persuades me. And now I need to explicitly say and repeatedly say that our unity as a church has nothing to do with which box we fit in. Our unity as a church has nothing to do based on which of these interpretations we take. You can be a member, a teacher, a leader at Tri-County Bible Church and take the first view, the second view, or the third view. You can be my closest friend and disagree with me in these matters. In fact, my closest friends disagree with me on this matter. And we have deep, decades-long respect for one another. Now, if this makes you feel uneasy, then I want to point you to Romans chapter 14 and 15, where Paul explains to the church that their unity is not based on uniformity. Individual believers in the congregation at Rome had differing interpretations of which things in the Old Testament believers were wise to follow today. They had differing interpretations, convictions, and lifestyles. And Paul says your unity as a congregation is not rooted in uniformity. That every one of you always takes the same interpretation, has the same conviction, and leads the same lifestyle. He says instead, welcome one another into close fellowship. He says don't get together to debate your differences. Welcome one another. He says live in such harmony with one another in full view of your differences live in such harmony with one another so that you with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ 
As Adam Hunt said in his interview last week, mature Christians differ in these debatable matters, and they give each other space to differ in these debatable matters. We can disagree on this debatable matter and still glorify God by our harmonious relationships and our unified worship of the Lord through Jesus. Now, I've dealt with the difficulty of interpretation, and I've explained where I'm at. Let me just say, either the temple was destroyed or it will be, according to Jesus. Either way, what Jesus is saying is, what Jesus is saying is, when the temple's destroyed, it's going to confirm the certainty of everything I've prophesied. That's the weight of it. The temple's destruction is the harbinger of a much greater prophecy. And in this passage, the much greater prophecy is one day the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. If the temple isn't destroyed, don't trust anything else Jesus has said. If the temple is destroyed, then wait for every other word Jesus has spoken to be fulfilled. He's going to reign forever as king. The third reason that Jesus speaks these words, this powerful sermon in Mark 13, is because he's equipping his followers for endurance through an era of horrific suffering. As Jesus described how the temple would be destroyed and Jerusalem decimated, he equips his disciples for the horrible persecution that would definitely begin in their generation, verses 5 through 8 and 9 through 13, and it would really characterize the entire era until he returns. Jesus describes some sufferings that are common to all people, like false teaching. You don't have to be a Christian to face the temptation of deceptive false teaching. International conflicts. This grieves everyone, whether you're a Christian or not. Natural disasters, same thing. These are sufferings common to all humanity. But there are some sufferings that Jesus describes, especially in verses 9 through 13, that are unique to Christians. Legal confrontations for your faith in Christ. Physical violence because you're a Christian. Family ostracism and betrayal because you're a Christian. And yet Jesus indicates very soberly through it all, his disciples are going to endure. Their commitment to him is stronger than anything persecution can rip away. So in describing the future, he equips us for suffering. Jesus' main point, I would put like this, the enduring faithfulness of every disciple is fueled by the certainty of the king's glorious return. The enduring faithfulness of every disciple, to state it negatively, it's not shaken by all of the international conflict or the relational betrayal. Instead, it is fueled by the certainty of the king's promise that he's going to return in glory. This is Mark 13. This is the essence of if you step back and say, what's going on from a 50,000-foot view? Jesus is saying the faithful endurance 
of every disciple is fueled by the certainty of the king's glorious return. So how should we apply it? Well, Jesus speaks the primary application repeatedly, beginning in verse 32. Verse 33 says, Be on guard, keep awake. You don't know when Jesus is coming back. Last two words of verse 34, Our master has commanded us to stay awake. Verse 35, Therefore stay awake. Verse 37, And what I say to you, I say to all, Stay awake. We have to get the point. According to the illustration that Jesus uses in verses 34 and 35, staying awake is like a doorkeeper. He's the homeowner and he's going on a trip. And he says, I don't want anyone breaking into the house. So you need to stay awake. The illustration is of a servant who faithfully fulfills his master's command. So on the flip side, falling asleep refers to a servant who ignores the homeowner's instructions, and he lives like his master's authority doesn't really matter. Master's gone, I can live however I want. That's what it would be to fall asleep, to ignore the master's authority and his instructions. So in the Christian life, not staying awake or falling asleep refers to something like just ignoring Jesus' instructions for what you do with your anger or what you do with your cruel words, or what you do with your lying, or what you do with your unforgiveness. What my master says doesn't really matter. He's gone. That would be falling asleep on the job. You've been given responsibilities regarding what to do with your anger and what to do with your unforgiveness. Falling asleep on the job would refer to ignoring Jesus' sexual ethic, saying, I want to live for what pleases me right now. It's just too hard. I'm going to give in. Or it would refer to ignoring Jesus' church. I don't want to have anything to do with Christians. They're too hard to get along with. Not investing in the discipling of others, in the committed prayer for others, not investing in the evangelism of the nations. My master's instructions, they don't really matter. What he wants me to do in the world, not, not really matter. That's fallen asleep. I want to take the application just a little bit further and speak very directly before I speak a few words of comfort. There are some in this room who don't need to stay awake. There are some in this room and you need to wake up. You're living as if life's all about you. And this whole world exists for the Son of Man. This whole world is made by Jesus and for Jesus. You need to wake up to reality. Jesus is God's crucified, risen, and returning King. And you need to admit your self-centeredness and you need to turn from it. And you need to say, Jesus, I've tried to ignore your authority to this point in my life and I need to commit myself and submit myself to you. You need today to repent of your waywardness and you need to call out on the Lord Jesus to save you before it's too late. You need to wake up to reality. It's only once you've woken up that you can then obey the command to stay awake. And now I speak to every Christian. 
stay awake. If you have gotten drowsy in your following of Jesus, then let this message be shaking on your shoulder. Come on, wake up. Don't, don't get so, so, so lazy. Don't fall asleep. Wake up. Stay awake. Now, we must not forget that Mark 13 is moving toward Mark 14 and Mark 15 and Mark 16. So in Mark 13, Jesus tells his disciples, stay awake. But you know what happens in the garden in chapter 14? Both literally and figuratively, the disciples fall asleep. They fall asleep at the time they should be most awake. And then what does Jesus do in chapter 15? Does he kick them and say, you worthless disciples, I'm going to find some new ones. He dies for us. He dies for us. He's crucified, as Mark says earlier, to free us from our self-centeredness and all of its curse, its consequences. So he tells us, stay awake. We often don't stay awake. He dies for when we fall asleep. And then in chapter 16, he rises again to prove that all of our sinful drowsiness is forgiven. It won't condemn followers of Jesus before God. And in fact, his resurrection proves that the same power that raised him from the dead can work in us to keep us awake and to bring us back when we fall and to give us power to obey his instructions. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us. By his spirit, there is power to get back up if you've gotten drowsy. There is power to stay awake and to keep on track.